Okay, today we're, we're in a third part of a series that I don't know how long it's going to last because I just, you know, as you keep going, you find new stuff and more stuff. And so I apologize for having no end date for this series. But we're talking about God, sex, and love. Or, <laughs> boy, did I get that out of order, huh? Mm. God, love, and sex. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, and today we're going to come to a part where we're talking about reconcilable differences. Okay. Now, why is it that most couples, or, or some couples, grow together while other couples grow apart? Have you ever noticed that? Some couples, they get, as, a, as they grow with age and as their, their relationship matures, they grow closer together. But there are some other couples that you can watch, and maybe in your family you've seen this happen, where they get older, they grow with age, and their uh, relationship gets longer, but they kind of grow apart from each other. You know, the guy might, he, you know, Every one of us guys, I think, I'm going to say 90% of us guys believe, and we perpetuate this story to our children. You know, if I had just gotten a better break when I was in college, I'd probably be playing professional sports right now. You know, I probably could have played for the Dodgers, you know, if it wasn't for the fact that I can't play baseball that well. You know? But in reality, I thought I could do, I thought I could do fairly well, and, you know, I, I could be making the big bucks if just a few other changes had happened, a few other breaks, you know. But, you know, sometimes guys get involved in that. Women get involved in their family, and sometimes those take the couple on disparate courses, okay? And they grow apart from each other because we guys, we're, we're simple beings, aren't we? We're still pursuing the dream, okay, you know? Okay, why is it that some couples forgive readily and easily and other people kind of hold a grudge, you know, you see this grow in, in relationships, you see families, you see where there's this, this tension that goes on uh, because of unforgiven stuff in the past. And it just kind of perpetuates and goes on and on and on and on. And pretty soon you have to say, why don't they just wave the white flag and say, I surrender. You know, let's get this straightened out. Let's forgive each other and let's get along. Why is it that some couples talk things out and other couples walk? Okay, they say, you know, it's not worth the effort to talk things out. It's not worth the effort to get along. I'm just going to walk. I'm going to go find somebody else. And I told you last week that finding the right partner is not the right thing. Okay, that's not the, the best thing that a relationship could have. Find, you know, I, I told you about the guy that was married eight times, right? And he came to me and said, hey, how come I can't find the right woman? And I told him it's because you're not the right guy. Okay, so it's more important to be the right person than to find the right person. So work on yourself, because that's what you have control over. And that requires talking with each other, not walking when you find the first bit of conflict. Okay? Now, why do some marriages work is the final essence, you know, and why do some not work? Why do some relationships work, some don't? Well, I want you to know something, and let's, if you're here with your significant other, your spouse, or whatever, look at them right now and say this, all couples fight. Okay, don't do that. Okay, don't do that. Oh, you, yeah. All couples fight, but some couples fight fair. Okay, and that's what I want us to know today. All couples fight. In fact, Cindy and I, a couple of weeks ago, we were having a knockdown drag out. We were fighting, and she came to me on her hands and knees. She did. She said, why don't you get out from under that bed and fight like a man? That didn't happen. I made that all up, you know. Lighten the mood because I felt like it was getting a little tense here. But the truth of the matter is all couples have conflict. Okay? There's conflict, but we don't have to fight. Okay? We can resolve conflict without fighting. 
Okay, so put that in your head there. And remember, the next time you have conflict, whether it be with a spouse, whether it be with a friend, whether it be with a family member, whatever you have conflict with, remember that there's a resolution to all conflict. There's no conflict that should cause you to walk. There is always conflict that should cause you to talk. In fact, if a couple doesn't have some conflict every now and then, they're pretty much the same, and that's pretty boring. You know, there has to be some conflict every now and then to sharpen us so that we know what our values are, so that we know how to resolve, so that we know how to relate to each other. So conflict is not necessarily a bad thing. So if you're married today, take this message today in that context. If you're single today, take it with the idea that maybe down the road there's going to be somebody and I can use these skills down the road. In fact, you can probably use them today if you're single with your friends. Okay, if you're a child or you're a parent, you can use these same skills in relating to each other on the, on the level that you find yourself. In Proverbs 27, verses 15 and 16, it says this. A quarrelsome wife is like the dripping of a leaky roof in a rainstorm. You laugh like some of you have never read that before, huh? Let me read it again then. A quarrelsome wife is like a, the dripping of a leaky roof in a rainstorm. Restraining her is like restraining the wind or grasping oil with the hand. Okay, men, if you feel so inclined right now, you could say a hearty amen. None of you feel so inclined. Ladies, there's another verse of scripture. It's not printed in your outline, but I'm just going to read it to you. Uh, and so you, you don't think that this is one-sided. It's better to have severe hemorrhoids than to live with a husband who is a jerk. Okay? You're wondering where that came from. Okay, well, where can I find that verse in the Bible? Well, you can't really, but it ought to be in the Bible. It ought to be in the Bible. So, ladies, if you feel so inclined, you can say a hearty amen right now. Amen. Ladies, I'll tell you what, men, you missed your chance. Okay. Okay, now, let's get started. Let's take a little review of what we've talked about so far. A couple of weeks ago, week one, we're talking about this couple in the Song of Solomon, okay? As we might refer to it as the Song of Songs. It's a book in the Bible in which a lot of commentators caution every pastor against preaching from, okay? Because there's some pretty juicy stuff in the Song of Solomon. And we learned early on that there's a guy and a girl, and they're coming together, they're going to become, a, they're going to build a relationship. And they built this relationship on a couple of things the first week. Number one, they found that they had godly character. And that was attractive to them. And then they set godly standards. Now, if you want to get that message, it's online. Uh, you can get that one. Okay, just go to www.marina.com and click on the sermons thing. And you can find that from two weeks ago. Now, last week, which we did not record much to my chagrin, because Dave Caveman was not here to tell me to push the button. Now, I've pushed the button, so today's is going to get recorded. But two weeks ago, uh, we talked about how they progressed through different seasons of their lives, in different seasons of their relationship. And if you're smart, and if you've had any kind of relationship at all, you realize that they go through stages, don't they? There's this first getting to know each other stage, and then there's this warm, fuzzy stage that, oh, man, I just can't, I can't talk to them enough. You get on the phone and you don't want to hang up. You know, no, you hang up. No, you hang up. No, you hang up. And you sit there and listen to each other breathe for about 30 minutes, and finally you fall asleep. The drool starts coming out, short circuits the phone, and it's all a mess from there. 
But the truth of the matter is it goes through stages. Then you go through a preparation stage for marriage. You get prepared. And then you go through this springtime in which you actually get to know each other. And we talked extensively about what you can do in each one of those stages of life. But today, we're going to find that there's trouble in paradise. Okay, there's trouble in paradise as we come across this couple. And here's what we're going to find in chapter 5, verse 2 of Song of Songs. It says this. Now, this is the lady speaking. She says this. I slept, but my heart was awake. Now, have you ever done that? You ever laid in bed, your heart's awake, you're, you know, your mind's racing, and, and you just can't get to sleep because you've got this tension and this turmoil that's going on. And that's what she's experiencing. She says, listen, my beloved is knocking. Okay? Why, now, they're married at this point. Why wasn't he there already? You have to wonder, was he out playing softball? What? You know, was he out you know, with his buddies? You know, where was he? Right, so he says, open, and here's what he says. My beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. Now, why is he complimenting her so much? <laughs> it, how many of you have ever brought flowers to your wife? And they asked, what'd you do? Okay, yeah, we find that often, you know. What'd you do? I remember one time I brought Cindy some flowers, and uh, she said, what are these for? And I just happened to notice that she had gotten a haircut. And I said, it's to celebrate your haircut. Yeah, quick thinking, huh? Yeah. And so it distracted her from saying, what'd you do wrong? Well, here's what I did wrong. There was a guy that came by the church, and he worked at this supermarket, and they had day-old flowers, and he got a bunch of them, brought them by the office, and said, hey, take these home to your wives. And so I did. And I didn't want to tell her that. I wanted her to think that I really went out and got the special flowers. And so now there's this big joke. Every time she gets a haircut, she says, where's the haircut flowers? Yeah, so, so, you know, we do things like that. And so that's what this guy's doing. He's buttering her up. Oh, my sister, open to me. Oh, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. Now, why? Why was his hair drenched with dew with the dampness of the night? Because he was out. He was out. He was not home. You don't get drenched with dew when you're in your house. Okay, he's out, and, and we don't know what he's doing. And so she responds, and she responds in verse number three, and she says this, I've taken off my robe, Most, uh, must I put it on again? I have washed my feet, must I soil them again? Do I need to get out of bed to let you in the house? You know, do I need to get up and do that? And so now we find that unfolding before our very eyes, we're going to see three very common causes of conflict. Number one, and there's a place for you to fill this in in your outline, there's unmet expectations. Unmet expectations. How many of you have ever had unmet expectations? Every one of you have. You expect something, and it's quite different. And we even have those in our relationships with the people that we love most. Unmet expectations. Let's take a look here. What was his expectations? His expectation was that he was going to be out at night, he was going to come home, and he was going to find her ready to receive his affection. Okay? Receive his affection. And so what does he say to her? He says this, very simply. He says, open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. Oh, he's looking for a little bit of affection. Now, what is her expectation? She's already gone to bed. She's taken her makeup off. She's gotten in bed. She's got all the stuff ready. She's laying in bed, and she says, do I need to get up? She has a different expectation of how the night is going to progress. Now, when you're first married, you have certain expectations, and sometimes when you're first married, those expectations really jive together. 
Now, I'll tell you where the deviation happens. The deviation happens when you have children. Okay? When you have children, there's a marked departure from the expectations of the wife and the expectations of the husband. The husband expects everything to do what? Be just like it was before. Just like it was before. The wife, however, what has she spent all day doing? Taking care of the kids, washing the dishes, washing the clothes, taking care of the house. And by the time you get home from work, guys, she is wasted. Okay? And she has a much different... I didn't mean wasted like that. <laughs> she is tired, if I have to elaborate on that. She's tired. Okay? And she's not in the mood for your amorous affection. Okay? So that's the difference in expectations. Now, there's a point in time sometimes in family life where there, it requires two incomes to, have, to meet the needs of the family. And so the wife goes to work. Now the expectations change dramatically again because what does the guy expect? Everything's going to be the same. And she's going to go to work just like I go to work. And she's going to come home and she's going to want some affection just like I want some affection. And guess what? She's waste. Well, she's tired. She's tired because she's taken the kids to school. She's gone to work. She's come home. She's made dinner. She's done whatever vacuuming and cleaning she can do. And all of a sudden you pop in the door and she can tell by the glint in your eyes that you guys are not on the same wavelength. (laughs) Expectations are different. Now, later on in life, you get retired. Okay, you get retired. You know what retired is? It means to be tired again. You are tired and then you are retired. And so therefore you come home and things are much different at that stage of life as well. And the expectations are much different. Because what is the number one need for a woman? Anybody know? If 80% rest, <laughs> to get away from this guy. Uh, but 80% of women, what they need is security. Security is the number one driving force for them. Now, for guys, the number one factor is what? What do they need out of a relationship? They need to be king of their castle, okay? They need to be king of their castle. It's kind of this macho thing that's not really so macho as it is that he needs to provide. He needs to take care of. He needs to be significant. And the way guys are significant is how? By going to work, providing for their family. And they say, man, I've done this. I've provided for my family. Now I'm coming home, and my expectations are that my wife's going to appreciate that, and we're going to have some affection at time. Okay? Now, women... They want what? They want security. So when you go to work, guys, she's saying, thank you. I feel secure. I feel secure. But when you don't, when we don't provide, they don't feel quite as secure. And if they're working outside the home, their security is built on what they produce and what they provide. So there's a whole different set of expectations. Now, how do you know what the expectations are of your spouse? I'm going to say 95% of people don't know what the expectation of their spouse is because... They never ask. They never, <laughs> Daniel said they don't listen. <laughs> and that might, that might be equally true. But, uh, but we don't ask, we don't talk, we don't communicate about what our expectations are. So, note to self, ask. Ask, what are your expectations? You know, what are we expecting here? Uh, what are we looking forward to? What are we not looking forward to? So take that. Now, there's unmet expectations. The second thing that we see happen here is selfishness. Selfishness is another root cause of conflict. Okay? Now, what does the lady say? She says, Must I? She says, I'm already in bed, okay? And I've washed my feet. Must I soil them again? Gee, just think. 
Because what was the floor made out of in this time? It's made out of dirt, dirt. And you didn't want to track that dirt into your bed, so you had to wash your feet, jump in bed, boom. And then if you get out of bed to open the door, you got to wash your feet again. And so what is she trying to avoid? Washing her feet again. Is that a little bit selfish? Your husband's at the door. He, no. Hey, this is not going the right direction, ladies. Hey. Uh, yeah. Okay. And, and understand. I understand. However, you know, and here we go, conflict, selfishness. What does he expect? He expects her to just jump out and be so excited about seeing him that she's going to open the door, get her feet dirty again, and he doesn't care. Okay? Selfishness. I want what I want. You want what you want. We don't talk about that stuff, but we have the expectations, don't we? Selfishness. Third thing is pride. Pride. Now, how do you know if you are full of pride? I'm going to give you a simple test. If you thought just for a moment here, I hope so-and-so is listening to this, that's a sign that you might be full of pride. Okay? I hope my husband's listening to this. I hope my wife's listening to this. Yeah, yeah. Okay, it might be that you are the cause of that. Now, we sometimes, when we get into this prideful situation, use two words quite frequently. One of them is always, and the other one is never. Okay, always and never. And I talk about this in in the sense of always and never kind of mentality. I'm always right, and you never are. Have you ever thought of that? You know, a lot of our communication in couples is about that. How many of you guys know how to stack a dishwasher? How many, of you, how many of your wives would say you do? Okay, I'll say that that's probably markedly different. Now, you guys that do know how to stack a dishwasher have been taught by your wife, okay, and you, and you know the rules. But when I stack a dishwasher, I, man, the more the merrier. You know, let's do the, You ladies are laughing. None of the men laughed at that. The more you can stack in there, the more efficient you will be. The less detergent you use, the more economical you will become. Okay? So, you know, it's, it's a matter of, of a guy's thinking is different than a lady's thinking. And so I never stack the dishwasher right. Okay? Cindy always does. And I agree with her. She always does. But we fall into this always and never. And we become historical. You know? You know, have you ever been historical in your arguments? You dredge up the past. Okay? I remember when, and you always do this. You always do this. And I always, you know, whenever I hear that, my first thought is what? Does that mean there's never a point in time where I'm not doing that? You always squeeze the toothpaste tube in the wrong spot. You squeeze it in the middle. No, you're supposed to roll it up from the bottom, and it's supposed to always be plump and ready to go. And you always do that. And I always want to think, is there, you know, Cindy doesn't have this beef, but I always want to think, does that mean that? Never once have I done it right. Never once. You know? But we fall into this always and never kind of mentality, and we do that with all kinds of things. Now, in the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verses 4 through 6, it says this. My beloved thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. Now, notice, she's kind of upset that he's been out all night, and now he's coming home, and he expects her to get up and open the door and all that stuff. Now, but notice, she has this conflict of feeling. She has a conflict of feeling because she really loves the guy and she wants him to come home and she wants to be with him. And so it says that her heart began to pound for him. I arose to open for my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh. Okay, she's ready to just throw her arms around him and, and love him. My fingers with flowing myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened for my beloved, but guess what? 
but my beloved had left. He was gone. My heart sank at his departure. Oh, man, we're talking about, you know, passive-aggressive here, aren't we? Uh, the guy comes home, finally comes home from wherever he is, out playing softball, doing whatever, out with his friends, and he knocks on the door, and she says, oh, do I need to get up? Oh, yeah, I really do love this guy. Okay, I'll get up. And she goes and opens the door, and guess what? He's gone. He says, well, if you're not going to jump at the chance to be with me, I'll show you. Okay, and we fall into that passive-aggressive response, maybe uh, more frequently than we would like to admit. Now, maybe you are there now. Maybe you have an experience with a friend, a loved one, a spouse, in which you are distanced. Now, it doesn't have to be physically. It could be emotionally. You could be emotionally distanced from the person that you love and still live in the same house, still eat that same breakfast table, still shop at the same stores, do all the stuff, but be emotionally distanced because you have been rejected, because you've been put down, because you have felt alienated, all of that stuff. And why does that happen? Because of unmet expectations, selfishness, and pride. We find ourselves in the very same position. But I want you to make a promise to yourself. You make a promise that you're not going to let that situation permeate your relationship for the rest of your lives. In fact, don't fall to the extremes of leaving. And so I'm going to give you three I do promises real quick here today. Three I do promises that I want you to repeat Okay? I want you to make these promises. Now, if you're married, I want you to make them to your spouse. If you're a friend, I want you to make it based on your friends. If you're a child or a parent, I want you to make it based on that. Okay? So here's the first I do promise. I want you to act, not react. Okay? Now, I'm going to ask you to repeat after me. Okay? I promise, I promise to, act, to act, not react. Okay, notice in Romans 12, verse 21, the Apostle Paul says this. Do not be overcome by evil, but what? Overcome evil with good. Overcome evil with good. Now, I'm going to just throw this out there and see how it fits for you. Reaction will generally be from my flesh, okay? From what I want, from my selfishness. My reaction will be from my selfishness, and my reaction will usually be pretty prompt, Somebody does something to you, and your reaction is pretty quick, isn't it? Anytime you have a very quick reaction based on your flesh, hold your breath. Okay? Count to ten. Do whatever you need to do to keep that from coming out. Okay? Control yourself. Uh, and you know, I, I don't want you to be so self-controlled as much as I want you to be spirit-controlled. Because if you are spirit-controlled controlled by the Holy Spirit of God, you're going to find that you take action, not reaction. When somebody comes to you and, says, and makes you mad, anybody here ever been made mad by someone? Okay, here, I'm just going to say this. I'm going to throw this out there. Nobody can make you mad. Nobody can make you mad. They can give you an opportunity to express the anger that's already in you. Okay, and a lot of times we misdirect that at the wrong target. So I want you to know now that nobody makes you do anything. You have a choice. Every one of you has a choice when somebody comes and attempts to make you mad or tries to get under your skin or does whatever, even if it is intentional. You always have a response, okay? And I say that when you get mad at them making you mad, that's a reaction of your flesh, okay? Now, if it's a response of your spirit, what does your spirit say? What does God teach us about people that mistreat us? 
We ought to do what? We ought to love them. We ought to pray for them. Okay? We ought to do all of those good things to people who try to make us mad. That's a response of the Spirit. It doesn't come real quick. Okay? It comes with a lot of training and a lot of reliance on the Holy Spirit of God. You have to say, okay, I've got to get full of who Jesus is. First of all, I have to know what he says. And then I have to train myself not to react, but to act. Okay? Actions can be trained as you rely upon the Holy Spirit of God more and more and more and more. So therefore, whenever you encounter someone, I want you, you know, I, I'm always amazed by police officers. I, I, I'm really, I really respect them a lot because they respond based on their training. They don't, they don't respond most of the time based on their emotional reaction. They don't. They know in this situation, I'm going to do this. I want you to become a Christian police officer. And I want you to train your mind to say, okay, when I'm confronted with somebody who is just kind of sour and mean and nasty and trying to get under my skin, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to love them. I'm going to bless them. I'm not going to curse them. I'm going to love them, bless them. I'm going to pray for them. And I'm going to do good to them, even though they're trying to do bad to me. Okay? And... Next thing I want you to do is look forward to that. Tomorrow, I don't know, I don't know if I should even say this. Maybe you should pray that God sends somebody in your path to be mean to you. No. <clears throat> I don't know. I don't know. Because we have, and the less you want to do that tells you the more you want to respond emotionally and from your flesh. Okay. Why would you not want to be a blessing to someone who curses you? Eh, you know, I get it. <laughs> I understand what you're saying. But, whatever. Let's move on. Okay, so promise. To act, not react. Number two, I want you to focus on the good, not the bad. Have you ever had, there, there are people, and you can, when you're around people, you can kind of automatically tell. Do they focus on the good or focus on the bad? Focus on the, what they have or what they don't have. And, you, and if you talk to somebody, engage them in conversation for very long, you'll find out the, the kind of people they are, if, if you're keen to that, what, what they do. In Philippians 4.8, it says this. Finally, brothers and sisters. And don't you love it when the pastor gets to that part where he says, finally, brothers and sisters. We're not there yet. Okay, The apostle Paul was. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, circle that word true. Okay, True. Now, how do you know what's true? If it's based on the word of God, it's true. Okay. Now, do you have to know the truth about what somebody's saying? If somebody tells you something, do you have to say, oh, that's true or that's not true? Sometimes it doesn't matter. Okay. But we're talking here about the truth of the word of God. So whatever God says is true, I want you to, to remember that. Okay. So whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is of higher character, Whatever causes you to aspire to higher heights, okay? Circle that word noble. Whatever is right. Did you know there's an absolute right and an absolute wrong? We live in a world today in which that line is very blurred and where people say, well, there's no absolute right, no absolute wrong. You know, it's just your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. And I say bunk to that. God says what is true and what is not true. So therefore, there is true. Whatever is true, uh, whatever is right, whatever is pure, Whatever is undefiled. And, and a lot of times people will talk to you and they have kind of this, 
this motive of manipulation. That's not pure. Okay? Pure is when we speak to somebody for their good. The Apostle Paul says what? Don't let any unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only those words that are good for what? For building others up, taking into account the need of the moment. Okay? What does this person need? And so therefore, what can I say that will be pure? I'm not trying to manipulate them for my ends or for my means or for my, my good, but I'm doing what is purely good for them. Okay? Whatever is lovely, okay? whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, what should you do with those things? Think about them. Think about them. A lot of times we let our thought life just kind of go. You know, it goes where it goes, and we think what we think, and, and we don't give it any direction. The Apostle Paul here says, give your thought life some direction. Give it some direction. And when you find that you do these things, what you're going to find is that you're going to be focusing on the good far more then you're focusing on the bad. You're going to focus on what you have that's beneficial than what you don't have that's detrimental. And so therefore, focus on the good, not the bad. Now, there was an article uh, years ago, uh, several years ago, about Billy Graham. And uh, they asked his wife, you know, because he was gone probably seven months out of the year. Okay, seven months out of the year. And they asked her, how do you deal with that? You know, doesn't it cause you to you know, wonder. You know, it's almost as if you're second place. And here's what she said. She said, five months of being with Billy is better than 12 months of being with any other man. Now, ladies, that's not true for you, okay? You don't want to go with Billy Graham. He's dead anyway. But uh, you don't want to, you don't want to say 12 months with this other guy is better than five months with my guy. Uh, So don't, don't do that. Uh, But the truth of the matter is, is that she realized the good, She didn't focus on the bad. She didn't focus on what they didn't have. She focused on what they did have. And so, therefore, focus on what you have, not on what you're lacking. Okay? Focus on what you have. Now, that doesn't mean to ignore what you don't have. It doesn't mean to ignore those differences. But it does mean to primarily focus on what you have. And you'll find that what you don't have is much more easily talked about and much more easily resolved. Okay? Number three. Oh, here, wait a minute. We've got to go back. I want you to promise, okay? Repeat after me. Focus, I'm go- I promise to focus on the good, not the bad. There you go. Okay, number three. Uh, I do promise to talk and not walk. Talk and not walk. Okay? Now, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. In your anger, do not sin. Now, is it a sin to be angry? Yep, no, maybe. <laughs> okay? It is not a sin to be angry as long as you're angry at the right thing. Okay? As long as you're angry at the right thing. If you're angry at me or I'm angry at you, whoops, excuse me, that's probably the wrong thing. What was Jesus angry about when he went into the temple and he saw all the stuff going on? Was he angry at the people? Yo, yes, he turned over their tables and threw their stuff around, and he ranted and raved. You know, well, I don't know if he ranted and raved, but I mean, he he was demonstrably angry, right? He, he, was angry to God. he was angry because they didn't respect the house of God as a house of prayer. They turned it into a, as he would describe it, a den of thieves. And so he's angry at what that was and the impact that it would have. He was angry at what Satan had planted in their minds. You know, 
I could get rich doing this. I could make some money off of these religious folks. I can be a money changer. I, and because what did they require? They required that the temple tax be paid in their monetary denominations. And so people that came in would exchange money, and they would do what? They would cheat them. They would cheat them. They would charge them exorbitant rates. Uh, they would charge exorbitant rates for the animals that were going to be sacrificed. And they were just, it was a moneymaker. Okay? It was no longer an act of worship. They weren't participating nor enhancing the worship that needed to go on there. And so, therefore, he was angry at that. But is he angry at the people or is he angry at the sources behind that? And that's what I would suggest to you that Jesus was truly angry at. He was angry at the source that caused those people to have those kinds of thoughts. Now, who do we know that source to be? The devil. Yeah, Satan. He's the guy behind all that. So, Jesus was angry at the right source but he loved the people dearly because what did he do for them in the end? He died for them. He died for them. And so therefore, in your anger, do not sin. And here are the, here's, the, here's the, the, the rule if you need a rule. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Don't let a day go by without resolving your anger. Okay. Don't let it happen, because what can we do? In that period of time, we can be misdirected from being angry at the right thing to angry at the people who personify it. Okay, We can become angry at people, can't we? Don't let that happen. Don't let the sun go down on your anger, because what will happen? It says in verse 27, do not give the devil a foothold. Don't give him a place in your heart from which to operate. Don't let him have that, and that's what anger will do. It will give him a place to operate, and he will say things like this. Oh, did you see so-and-so at church, what they said about you? Yeah. And create division in the church. He can create division among brothers and sisters. He can create division among family members. He can create division, because that's his primary goal, is to divide you. And what he wants to do is isolate you. And if he can divide you from the family of God, if he can divide you from the family in which you live, and get you all isolated all by yourself, you know what it says in 1 Peter 5, 8? He's an adversary. He prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, you know how lions devour, people, devour animals? They get them off by themselves. Any National Geographic fans here? Yeah, you watch National Geographic and you see it all the time. You know, they got the little baby elephants out there and you see the lions out there, you know, and pretty soon they get the, the lions, the big, uh, the big elephants running off. You know, and guess what? The little elephant's legs are just not long enough to keep up. And pretty soon, boom. They get one, they get a, get a gazelle or they get a whatever, you know, and because they are not able to keep up with the herd. They get them off by themselves. Now, if we can't keep up with the herd, what he wants to do is separate us, devour us, eat us for lunch. Now, how many of you have ever been to a Christian wedding? <laughs> not many of you. Gee, let me tell you how it goes on then. Uh, in there, sometimes in that period of time, uh, the pastor will say something to the effect of, and the two shall be united and become one flesh. The two shall be united and become one flesh. You know, uh, that word united is very easily mistyped. Okay? In fact, I've had it in my notes before where it says, and the two shall be untied and become one flesh. You know what the difference between untied and united is? The placement of I. In your relationship, the difference between united and untied is the placement of I, of you. 
And so therefore, when you become too important and you say, I'm not going to talk about this anymore, I'm, stu- I'm done, I'm sick and tired of this, and I'm just going to walk, guess what? You have untied because you have become more important than the spouse with whom you have committed your life. Okay? So make sure that the I is always in the right place. Okay? Make sure that you are united and not untied. I remember when our kids were real young, we made a promise, and both of us talked to our kids and told our children, said, no matter what happens, no matter how many plates mommy throws at dad, no matter how many times she beats him up, no matter how many times she takes his keys away, no matter how many times she locks him out of the house. No, we didn't say that. But we made sure that our kids understood that no matter what, they were, we were never, ever, ever, ever going to get a divorce. You know, our kids went out through school, and most of their fr- friends in school ended up in divorce. You know, they would come home and say, oh, Carrie's parents are getting divorced, or so-and-so's parents are getting divorced. And I would always take that opportunity to remind them and say, but your mom and dad will never get a divorce. Never. No matter what happens. And it creates a sense of an, an environment of, of comfortability, and it also creates an environment of stability. I know that things are going to be okay. I know that things are going to go on. I know my mom and dad are not going to leave. I know. And we never did. Uh, we never did get a divorce. <laughs> well, yet. Yeah. I know. If I keep talking about my personal stuff with Cindy, I might. Uh, but, but the truth of the matter is, is when we place ourselves in the right position, when the I is in the right position, we will stay united and not become untied. untied. Now, as we look at the story here of our young couple, uh, we realize that they endured another winter and they grew to enjoy another spring. As we talked about last week, what was winter? Winter was the time of preparation. When you look around, you see all the, the trees. You know, they don't have any leaves on them. You go by the vineyards, and it looks like they're just a bunch of sticks. And we think, gosh, it's all dead. You know, it's, there's nothing good going to come from that. The truth of the matter is, is that all of those things are being prepared for spring, where new life comes where the leaves sprout, the grapes happen, the nuts grow on the trees, and whatever happens in whatever thing you got uh, happens to come to maturity. It happens the same thing in our relationships, in our seasons of life. The winters in which we think nothing's happening, it looks like things are barren, guess what? That's the time God can use to prepare you for the springtime. Now, As you transition from stage to stage, frequently there will be a winter that comes before the next stage of life. Now, the next stage of life, you know, might be childbearing. The next stage of life might be retirement. The next stage of life, who knows what it is. But there many times comes a winter, a time of preparation in which you think, oh, things are going to get worse. Things are not going to be good here. I remember when the first time I came home and Cindy says, guess what? I said, what? She says, I'm pregnant. I said, oh. I said, and, and I was smart enough at that, by that time to not say, oh. No, but that's what happened inside me. Outside me, I grabbed her. I said, I, put, I buried her head in my shoulder so she couldn't see the shock and amazement on my face and the, the fear. And I remember thinking, I'm not ready to be a dad. I don't know that I could be a dad. I mean, I love my wife. What am I going to do with a child? How much, I don't have enough love in me maybe to have a child. And then Jenny was born and I realized, boom, I have more love. And I have enough love for Cindy. I have enough love for Jenny. And then uh, a couple of years later, I came home and Cindy said, guess what? 
I grabbed her, buried her head in my shoulder. And I said, what? And she says, I'm pregnant. We're going to have another baby. I said, oh, no. I said, I don't know if I can love two children and you and all the stuff. I, that's going through my head. I didn't say it out loud. I'm not stupid. Uh, but, uh, but I realized Jared's born, and I go, man, I have enough love for, man, I love all of these people. And I, th- I thought to myself and never told Cindy, I bet I could love 10 kids. <laughs> I didn't tell her that. Okay. But the truth of the matter is, is that there's a season of preparation. There's this winter that happens before the next stage of life. And you hold your breath and you wonder, am I going to be able to make it? Am I going to be able to do this? But God is behind the scenes preparing you for exactly that. And when those situations come up, you can rest assured that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have him as the Lord of your life, that he's preparing you and he's making you ready for the next stage that he wants to unfold for you. Now, our couple here finds new growth in their relationship. Through this winter, this preparation in which they have this little spat, they find that God is preparing them. And we find it in verses 11 through 13 of chapter 6. It says this, I went down to the grove of nut trees to look at the new growth in the valley. Okay, this is all illustrative. And it's talking about how I'm looking at my life and I see there's new growth. You know, we went through this period, this season of of difficulty and this season of conflict. God prepared us. And now I look down the road and I see new growth. Anytime you have conflict, anytime you experience conflict, I believe you should be able to look back and say, man, I've seen growth. I've seen growth in me. I've seen growth in the people that I've had conflict with because we handled it properly. We resolve the conflict without separating. Okay? In verse number 12, it says, Before I realized it, my desire set me among the royal chariots of my people. Okay? He was elevated. He was elevated. He said, before I realized it, man, I was down in the dumps down here. But now I realize I'm elevated. I have succeeded in resolving conflict. And now he says what? To his wife. He says, come back. Come back, O Shulamite. That's the nation she was from. Come back. Come back, O Shulamite. Come back, come back, that we may gaze on you. Ah, come back and let's grasp each other. Let's enjoy each other. Let's have resolved conflict that causes us to grow in our love, our respect, our adoration for each other. You might realize that that's the kind of life you want to have. I'm going to say to you that you probably can't have this kind of life without having somebody to direct your life. Because if left to our own devices, what do we become? Or what do we exhibit? I'm going to just go back. I'm just going to go back to the beginning of our message here, the root causes of conflict. Here's what we're going to have if we direct our lives, unmet expectations. We're going to have selfishness. We're going to have pride. Because I want what I want, and when do I want it? I want it right now. Okay? Now, if I have somebody else directing my life, and I'm going to suggest that we have the Lord Jesus Christ direct our lives, guess what? We start seeing from his perspective. We start seeing about what we can contribute rather than what we can withdraw. Every relationship has a banking system. Did you know that? Every relationship has a banking system in which you will make deposits and you will make withdrawals. They are emotional in nature. 
I'm going to make some emotional deposits. I'm going to bring flowers to Cindy. I'm going to uh, thank her so much for the dinners that she makes. I'm going to say what a great friend she is. I'm going to make some deposits because there's a point down the road where I'm going to choke. And I'm going to make a withdrawal. And if my account balances go negative, things are not going to be good. So I need to have far more deposits than I have withdrawals. That's what a good bank account has, right? Okay. So guys, ladies, make deposits in each other so that when those necessary withdrawals have to happen, you know, we have a little bit of cushion. And so that's what we find here. He says, man, uh, I, I find that, that I've, I'm gazing upon this life. I'm gazing upon this growth. And man, I want to get back together. I want to be united because I want us to have far more deposits than we have withdrawals. Jesus gives us that perspective. Jesus gives us the perspective of building into people rather than withdrawing from them.